Well, on uh, April of 2013, a couple of guys uh, decided that they were going to blow up the Boston Marathon. Uh, and so what they did is they took some pressure cookers, uh, they filled it with all kinds of nasty stuff. Uh, they took those pressure cookers to uh, the f near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Uh, and as the majority of the racers were starting to come in, uh, they put so much pressure on those pressure cookers uh, that the pressure uh, cookers just exploded. Uh, the result was uh, three people died and over 200 were injured, many of them losing uh, different limbs. Uh, I say that to just talk about pressure. You know, pressure uh, is pretty fascinating. It can do some amazing things, uh, but it can also uh, be very destructive. Uh, it can be used in a wrong way where, uh, such as in the pressure bomb cookers, or pressure cooker bombs, uh, they can just explode and cause all kinds of damage. Uh, but pressure can also create some beautiful things as well. Uh, take a diamond. Uh, diamonds are created through pressure and heat. Uh, and so uh, when pressure comes in the lives of Christians, I think we really have two different types of responses. Uh, we can allow uh, the pressure to build up until we become explosive, causing harm to other people, or we can allow it uh, to mold us into something different, uh, something beautiful. Uh, when we look at the uh, early Christians, we see that pretty early on in, in the life of the church, uh, they started to face different types of pressure. Uh, so we want to kind of look at that today. Uh, we're going to start off in Acts chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, we'd encourage you uh, to turn there. You can follow along also on the YouVersion Live app uh, and, and, and uh, see all the scriptures we're going to use today. Well, uh, one of the things I just want to do before we start in this is, is just remind you what we're doing here. Uh, we're looking at these early situations that the Christians faced uh, because they responded in a way that I think uh, we should imitate. Uh, while they uh, definitely face things differently than what we face, uh, we uh, still face a lot of the same situations. We still feel a lot of the same things. And so uh, last week we talked about this empowering of the Holy Spirit, and the goal was to glorify Jesus to testify about Him. Uh, and so today we're going to look at pressure situations. Uh, Acts chapter 3, we're not actually going to read it. We want to kind of use it as a background. Uh, and Acts chapter uh, 2 is the birth of the church. That's where the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them. They do miraculous things, uh, speaking in tongues. Uh, and then we get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is kind of the next big scene for the church. We don't uh, have a lot of information as far as a time frame. Uh, maybe it was a couple months. Maybe it was a couple years. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, and it doesn't really matter. So we get into chapter 3 and we see uh, that two of the apostles... Uh, Peter and John, uh, they are told to be going up to the temple uh, to pray. Uh, there are, uh, in the Jewish life, there were three different hours of prayer that they would go to on a, on a daily basis. You would stop everything. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would go up to the temple and you would pray during these hours of prayers. And so John and Peter, they're doing that. They're going to uh, the temple for prayer. And as they come, uh, they come across a man who happens to be paralyzed and he was lame since birth. And we're told later on that it's been about 40 years. And so this guy, for 40 years of his life, has not been able to walk. And so he's there at the temple begging for money. And this was a pretty common scene in that time period because uh, if you could not work, if you're not physically able to do so, you begged in order to feed yourself. 
Uh, and so uh, this man would have been laid there at the temple. What better place? You know, these people who are very religious, they're going to give, right? And so he's sitting there at the temple uh, begging for money. And Peter and John come upon him, and they say to him uh, a pretty uh, uh, significant line. They say, silver and gold uh, I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And they, uh, Peter, we're told, lifts this man up who has never walked in his entire life, and he begins to walk. But he doesn't just walk, right? I mean, how many of you, honestly, if you had not walked for 40 years, would just walk? All right? No, that's not what he was doing. He was happy. He was skipping. He was jumping up and down. He was saying, hallelujah, praise God. And it's a great moment. You know, but what, what are they there for again? What are they there for? This is a prayer. All right, so when you pray, how do you pray? Do you pray really loudly or do you pray quietly? Now, they probably would have prayed a little bit differently than we were. All right, but it's the hour of prayer, and here's this guy who's just been healed. Uh, people are trying to connect to God, and here he is saying, Hallelujah! And so it causes a commotion. And in Acts chapter 3, we're told that a great crowd comes and they begin to wonder at what has happened. And Peter and John, they look at him and says, why do you wonder? The only reason this man can walk is because of Jesus. And they present the gospel to this people. And then we get uh, to what happens in Acts chapter 4 in verse 1. And we read uh, that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, and while they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching uh, the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem." So uh, here we have this crowd has formed, and, and it's in the temple courts. And so the priests, they're kind of curious. Who wouldn't be? Remember last week we talked about uh, what you did when there was a fight at school, and everybody was shouting, fight, fight, fight. What did you do? Did you run away or go to it? You went to it. Don't lie. You all went to it. Uh, you wanted to see who it was and what they were doing. And that's kind of what uh, probably is happening here is there's this crowd and the religious leaders, the priests who work there, they're wanting to know what it is and they bring the guards along just in case there's trouble. And so they come, they listen to what Peter and John have to say and they're disturbed. And the reason they're disturbed is because they're talking about Jesus and they're talking about the resurrection from the dead. Now Sadducees, uh, one of the things that my teacher always said was they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. All right, and so the Sadducees not believe in the resurrection partly because they were the ones in power. And for them in that time period, resurrection meant a change in order. And those who were in power lose it. And so the Sadducees taught there is no resurrection, there is no resurrection. And here Peter and John saying, yes, there is a resurrection. And there's Jesus. And they're, they're not happy about that either because they're the ones that put Jesus on trial and crucified him. All right, so they, they hear these guys talking, seeing this great miracle, and they decide the best thing to do is to arrest them. And so they put them in jail. Uh, it's nighttime. They leave them there overnight, and then everybody gathers the next day. And the people that are gathering are the what's called the Sanhedrin. 
And they're going to appear a couple of times in the next couple of chapters. The Sanhedrin are, at the very core, the supreme courts of the Jewish religion. And if a major issue came up in the Jews' world, they would come to the Sanhedrin and they would pass judgments. And so these guys are being brought before these religious leaders, these rulers of the Jewish religion, and they're being asked one very simple question. By what power or name did you do this? I mean, it's a very simple question, and, and Peter and John, they have a, a brilliant response. Basically, there in the last half of chapter 4, they say, ah, you know, it's Jesus, you crucified him. Right? That, they criticize them for the way they're acting. You know, the religious leaders, they're, they're actually not really caring about this man being healed. What they really care about is, what are you telling people? They're not even expressing excitement over what has happened. You know, they don't like what they're being told. And in verse 12 of, of this chapter, we're told uh, that Peter sum, sums up everything that he's been talking to them about. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which he must be saved. As a beautiful summation of the gospel, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the religious leaders, they don't really like this. And they don't like it for, for a couple of reasons. But one, the biggest reason they don't like it is because for them, they thought they knew the way of salvation. You know, they were in charge of the religion of Israel. They were in charge of telling people, you need to sacrifice this and that, and that's how you get to be with God. That's how you are saved. And here, Peter and John stands before them and says, no, you're wrong. Now, how many of you like to be told you're wrong? No, not a lot of us do. Especially if we think we know what is right. And we're doing something the way that we know is right. And someone comes up to us and says, hey, you know what? You're doing that wrong. A lot of us get very defensive over that, if not all of us. And so when we see these first pressure situations, these first persecutions of the early church, we see it's a result of them telling them you're doing it wrong. Now, that's not necessarily exactly how they're saying it. It's just how it's being interpreted. The, the really, the Peter and John, they're saying here, hey, there is a better way to do this. And when we approach people and we talk to people about sin in their lives, it's not to say that you're doing it wrong, bad on you. It's to say there is a better way to do it. There's salvation in Jesus. And he's calling us to something greater. Well, the religious leaders, their response is this in verse 13. We're told that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, uh, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Right, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have formed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. So to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Uh, and so what, what we see is a, a response that is 
comical, if not sad. See, the, the Sanhedrin, these Israelites, these religious leaders, they do not even take note of what Peter and John is saying. They don't even stop for a moment and examine, maybe, just maybe, we are wrong. And instead, they want to discredit them. But they know that they can't. And so they're very good politicians here. Right? They are more concerned about the response of the people than about how they should be responding. And so what they do is they say, well, we can't really deny it even though we want to deny it because if we deny it, then all of Jerusalem will be upset. So what can we do? Well, let's just tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore. All right, so their, their first form of persecution against the early church was threats. Right, it was, if you don't if you stop doing this, then bad things are going to happen to you. And this is what I think most of us in America we face. This is the form that I think we face the most. And that is threats. That if you don't do this, then bad things are going to happen. If you don't stop talking about Jesus at work, then this is what's going to happen. If you don't stop praying in school, then this is what's going to happen. You name whatever you want to name. All right? There's a lot of that. All right? So if this is the case, if this is the threats that they were facing, how did the early Christians respond? Well, in verse 23, we read that uh, on their release after being threatened, Peter and John went back to their own people and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So basically, they just go back to the church and they say, hey, this is what we've been told. We're not supposed to talk about Jesus. And then they start to pray. And here's what they don't pray for. They don't pray for the persecution to stop. Right? They, don't, they don't pray for safety in their lives. I think a lot of times as, as American Christians, this is what we pray for when we feel like we're being persecuted. Right, we pray that God will protect us from it. We pray that God will take it away. We pray that God will get back to its roots, or America will get back to its roots, and that all of this will be better. But that's not what Peter and John pray for. What, what the early church prays for is this, that they may be bold in proclaiming the name of Jesus. See, I think we have a bad view of persecution. Sometimes I think we think we're being persecuted when we're not, but that's a side point. But when we actually are being persecuted, I think we get angry. I think of most American Christians, this is our reaction. Oh, they shouldn't do that. This isn't a, a Christian country, is it? Like, that's not what we should be doing. The reaction of these guys as they are being persecuted in a godly country is they pray that they will be bold and we're told at the very end of the chapter that not only do they pray that they will be bold that they go out and they continue to proclaim the name of jesus and they do it boldly so even though they were told you don't do this or else they still did it like this is what the Holy Spirit was doing inside them. This was what the Holy Spirit was empowering them as Christians to go out and to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, even if you're threatened. And to pray that you may have the courage to be bold, not that the persecution will be taken away. See, this is the one thing that Jesus said over and over again. The world is going to persecute Christians because the world persecuted Jesus. And we are no better than our Lord. And if that's the case, our prayer shouldn't be that we be safe from persecution. Our prayer needs to be that we continue to do God's will in this world. 
Well, the persecution doesn't stop just at threats for the early church. In chapter 5, uh, it doesn't take them very long to, to get to the next level. See, in chapter 5, uh, we see that the Holy Spirit begins uh, in the first couple of cha- verses to empower the, uh, the, the Christians to work towards what God is calling them to do. In chapter 12, or verse 12, we read that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. All right, so where the place where they were arrested, do you remember where that was? The temple? They're up at the time of prayer? Well, Solomon's colonnade is in the temple. And so we're told here that the Christians, uh, after they were threatened not to talk about Jesus anymore, they, on a regular basis, met in the temple to talk about Jesus. All right, just, just think about that for a little bit. Verse 13, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. As a result, people brought their sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. And then verse 17, the high priests and all his associates who are members of the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. And here's why I think they were filled with jealousy. They for generations, had led the people of Israel in the religious service. And here, coming before them, is a ragtag bunch of people who are unschooled, untrained, and yet the entire surrounding countryside was bringing people to them. Now, the the Sadducees, the priests, they had spent their entire lives, and the only time they had crowds was when the crowds were required to come by law. Not just because they wanted to. And it filled them with jealousy. They were were upset that they had more popularity than they did. And so they, because they had power, used their jealousy in a bad way. They uh, they arrest the apostles, the leaders of this group of Christians. And they, they do it at night. Okay, just, just because that's how they do things. And they, they go to sleep the next day, and, and, but God had a different plan. And, and in this chapter, we're told that an angel comes, and he releases the apostles and says, go preach again. And so they're arrested in the temple. And, and then the next morning when the uh, priests wake up, they gather the Sanhedrin. They're ready to have court. Uh, and we're told that they ask for the jailer to go get the uh, prisoners. And the jailer comes back and says, uh, there's no prisoners. And, and, and they're sitting there scratching their heads when a couple of people come in and say, hey, you know those guys you arrested yesterday? They're in the temple preaching still. And so they finally go get them, and they, they bring them in. And in verse uh, 28, uh, we read that the high priest asked him, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Uh, you remember those threats we talked about? Uh, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter, uh, being Peter, responds like this. He says, we must obey God rather than man. And Peter's response is, you know, God is more important than you guys. And that doesn't sit well with them. That wasn't the response that they were looking for. They, they are used to being listened to. When they threaten you, you listened. And you did what you were supposed to do. And so when these guys are just 
bucking the system. Their response is, why are you doing this still? And he says, you know what? God's more important than you. Jesus once said, do not fear man who is able to destroy body, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. And this is just what Peter and the apostles are doing. They are fearing God rather than man. Well, the uh, religious leaders, they don't really know what to do at this point. So they start to argue amongst themselves. And finally, one of their numbers stands up and he says, hey, guys, listen, uh, we know God is really in control. And if God uh, wants this to happen and we fight against it, we're going to lose. So let's just not fight it. Let's just see what God does with it. And, and this is, that, that was his argument. So in verse 41, or 40, we read that his speech persuaded them. They called in the apostles. They had them flogged. All right, and then they said, don't speak about Jesus again. All right, so, so first, we see this progression, right? From first threatening, if you don't do this, something bad will happen, to now they're using the law to beat them. And this is a progression that we see throughout history. First, Christians are threatened. And then when they don't abide by the threats, the law is used against them. And we can kind of see some of that happening in America from place to place. Right, and that, that's, just, that's just the progression that we see here. And we see even a progression within the, the religious leaders and how they're feeling. See, they, they, they were, didn't like what they were hearing. They were being told they were doing it wrong. Now they're jealous because of the kindness of the Christians uh, outweighing what they did. And they're just using these, this, this pent-up anger uh, to, to persecute these Christians. And so after being beaten, how did the Christians respond? Did they get up in arms? Did they sue the Sanhedrin? No, this is, what, this is what we're told they did in verse 41. They said the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. See, their reaction wasn't to get mad back. Their action wasn't to get even. Their action was to rejoice. Praise God that we suffered. I think we, we miss this. I mean, we'd rather be angry, right? I mean, we just got beaten by the law. We would rather be angry than rejoice. That's sad. That's not how I think we're supposed to act. When we're persecuted, we should still boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Both of these stories, that's what happens. Okay, we're not supposed to talk about Jesus in the temple. So where do they go to talk about Jesus? The temple. Because Jesus said, tell everybody, make disciples of all nations. So wherever you're at, talk about Jesus. And when you're persecuted, pray like they did and rejoice like they did. Well, if beatings could stop the spread of the gospel, we would just have five chapters of Acts, but that doesn't happen. They continue to talk about Jesus, and in chapter 6, uh, we come across a guy by the name of Stephen. 
And Stephen, we're told, is, is uh, let's just read it. In verse 8, we're told that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. He performed great wonders and uh, signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so there's this progression that's happened with the religious leaders. They started off not liking what they were hearing to, uh, we're kind of jealous of your popularity, to uh, they were just being foolish. And foolish people do foolish things. And here they blame Stephen for doing something that was considered very bad, blasphemy. Well, Stephen, he's arguing with these guys who started the argument, and they were from Sicilia and, and uh, uh, Alexandria, Cyrene and Alexandria. And these two places were renowned for their wisdom. And so when they start to argue, these guys are guys that are like professors. They study the word. They know what they're talking about. And, and uh, Stephen is able to talk in such a way that he proves that he's wiser. And it's the wisdom given to him by the Spirit, and he proves that they're foolish. And they're not used to striking out. You know, they are the respected men of the world, and yet here they don't know what they're talking about. And so they get a couple of people to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. And blasphemy is a very bad thing in the Bible. Uh, it just results in death. You will be killed. And so they grab Stephen. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 7, we're told that they ask a very simple question. Are these accusations true? And so Stephen, to these well-wise men, these men that know their Bibles very well, recites to these people, the history of the Israelites. He sits there, all of chapter 7. If you've never read the Old Testament, just read Acts chapter 7. You'll get a pretty good idea of what it's about. And all of chapter 7, he, he talks about how God has led his people. And he, at the very end of his lecture, he looks at them and he says, you guys are stiff-necked people. How many people would like to be called stiff-necked? Yeah, now, it doesn't sit very well with them either. And they start to get a little upset. And then Stephen says, I see the heavens opening up. And I see the Son of Man sitting next to the throne of God. And at this, they cover their ears. And they go, ah, like that. Right, ah, and they rush Stephen. And they drag him out of town. And they start to stone him. And so we have this progression of aggression from threats to floggings, to now they are killing the Christians. So how did the Christians respond to that? Well, Stephen, in verse 57, we're told, oh no, sorry, verse 59, we're told while they were stoning him, so as they're throwing these rocks at him, breaking his bones, killing him, says to God, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he falls on his knees and he cries out, Lord do not hold this sin against them. Stephen's response as he is being killed is to forgive. Even though these people weren't asking for forgiveness, even though these people didn't realize they were even sinning, he, Stephen looks at them and says, I forgive you. Is that our response? 
lot of times it's not. A lot of times as Christians in America, we want to get angry, right? You can't do that. You can't treat me like this. I'm a Christian. But the response that we see from the early Christians is they prayed to God for boldness. They praised God that they were being persecuted and they forgave their persecutors. And I think that this is how we should respond. The rest of the early Christians in chapter 8 were told uh, that on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. They all, uh, and all except the apostles, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And in verse 4 we're told that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And in every one of these persecutions, we see this common theme that though they were told to be silent, they would not be silent. That though they were told to, the world was doing everything in their possible power to keep Christians quiet, they were not going to be quiet. And I think the problem that we have in America is this. As American Christians, we stop at the threats. We stop telling people about Jesus way over here. And the reason why we don't see more persecution than, than what we do is because we're okay being quiet. And that's bad for us. That's wrong for us. The reason why that we have the Holy Spirit inside us is to empower us to testify about Jesus and to bring Him glory. And so if we're silent all the way back here, what are we doing? That's not what we're supposed to do. We should be praying for boldness and speaking boldly wherever we're at, no matter the consequence. That's what the goal of the Bible is. That's what we as Christians need to be doing. So my question to you is this. Are you going to allow the pressure to build up inside you into anger and destroy souls that are around you? Or will you allow it to turn you into something beautiful? Will you use that pressure to continue to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus wherever you go. Will you pray with me? Great God, we are amazed at Jesus and we heed his warning that this world is not going to be easy for us as Christians. And Lord, as we face these different pressure situations in our lives, I just pray, God, that we will not shut down as Christians, that we will not be quiet, but rather we will Go out and boldly proclaim your name wherever we are as we're scattered about this world, as we move from place to place. Help us to just be bold. Whether we're being threatened, whether we're being flogged, whether we're being killed for your name. That is what I ask for. Boldness. Lord, I pray for those who are here that they can just hear that message, that they can Get rid of whatever anger they may have against different situations happening today in this world. And would rather just focus on what really matters. Doing your will, spreading the name, making disciples. And I pray, Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, that they will hear the message that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing your life on the cross, for rising again that we may have new life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.